Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's show, we explore how companies are closing the loop on ghost gear in the oceans to get people into volleyball. That's first event, gathering those volleyball stars in the middle of, you know, Copacabana Beach was um, the catalyst of something which, of course, is, is much stronger. We ask whether recycling can be sexy enough to change consumer behaviours. This is the creation of your effort to mm. recycle uh, yeah. whatever it is, if it's Nespresso pods or if it's a cap. And we get under the lid of the ever-growing retail take-back scheme. Duster was started not as a, a, an opportunity to kind of create a nice little company that takes advantage of some diseconomy. It was really set up very much with a mission of changing that flow. You know, let, let's go for broke or go home. So, yes, hello and welcome back to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I'm Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, and I'm joined today by reporter Sarah George. We're broadcasting not so live this week. It's actually Monday the 5th of August. Uh, that's mainly because I'm going on holiday tomorrow, not to brag at all. Um, yeah, I know, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean we're any less cheerful on what is a rather gloomy start to the week. Sarah, how are you? Yes, good, although a little bit fragile, probably, seeing as it was Brighton Pride um, at the weekend, something I make a point of going to every year. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 what, did your, what did your week at Pride look like, or is it a bit of a blurred memory? Um, it's not, actually, considering that I don't drink very much there anymore. Um, it looked like um, hanging around with friends and watching the parade pretty much all day, um, having a few tinnies on the beach and getting extremely sunburnt in the morning and then running to try and get the last bus home because we'd lost track of time. I think that's a, a given when you're at stuff like Pride, isn't yes, it? Time absolutely. does fly by. Um, and well, while you were at Busy at Pride, um, I've actually been recovering from quite a serious sports injury um, and I've recovered by just sitting at home watching sport. Uh, I'm unfortunately missing pretty much all of my pre-season with my local football club that I play for. A big shout out to Newark FC, by the way. Um, but at least there's some really interesting sport on the television. Over the past week, or at least at the weekend, I have been able to watch Steve Smith uh, smashing England bowlers all over Edgebaston in the cricket. I caught glimpses of Lewis Hamilton's win in the Formula One, and even saw 20-year-old, I hope I get this right, Hinako Shibuno claim her first major at the British Open in, in the golf. I felt my own hamstring pull as I watched Carl Walker acrobatically clear one off a line at Wembley. And just this morning I read that um, Philadelphia Union's Alejandro Bedoya um, scored a goal in his Major League soccer match and used it, grabbed hold of a microphone and shouted for the end to gun violence in America, which is quite an interesting celebration. Uh, basically what I'm trying to say here is, is that the late summer and early autumn is just a goodie bag of sports and it's kind of well and truly in... Um, full motion at the moment and I think sports are just weird in general <laughs> the, the 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 emotion that it drums up between kind of everyday people is, is just mm. it's just bizarre no, I, I, I was I was talking to Jump who run the behaviour change scheme and they mm. were like it does so well because as a nation we are obsessed with competition yeah um, we're obsessed with watching our teams compete every weekend and that's how we spend our um, our leisure time so that's why yeah I was I was I was at a pub on Saturday and we were just playing table tennis outside and that got 
that got yeah weirdly competitive as yeah. well. It, it just happens in everyday stuff. It's it's usually grown men in their kind of forties and fifties. Um, they kind of turn into these like tribalistic warriors. Um, I don't know if you saw the video of the Community Shield where the the group of men fighting on the London Underground, but that's basically what football um, in general and, and sports more widely tends to do to people. I think it's passion for a lack of a better term. Um, it kind of creates a dedication where people will literally travel lengths of the country or even the globe to kind of showcase their support and uh, to a team or to a, to a person or to a sport. And it kind of offers up quite a hefty carbon footprint as a result. We, you know, sports capture the interest there. You know, when the Olympics come around, everyone is what they talk about. But there's there's this, you know, an impact that it has um, on the environment as well, which, you know, is kind of what we're hoping to discuss a bit today for this episode. Um, but that's not to say, you know, sports is immune to sustainability and this what's becoming a mainstream uh, growth. And, and Sarah, I, I know you've been doing a, a fair bit of work on, on some major sporting events um, over the last year or so and indeed this week so mm-hmm. I think it's a good place to start if you can highlight how some major events are starting to go green. Yeah now as you said it is a bit of a mixed bag obviously any large event is going to come with big water footprints and with big carbon and transport footprints particularly um, but as you touched on there they're also a great opportunity to showcase um, ideas of sustainability to a really big audience and one that is already in passionate mode so it's a double-edged sword really um, and in preparation for this episode I was looking back at my sports coverage on ED and the first big event that I covered was the World Cup 2018 mm-hmm. and sort of looking into each bit um, each bit of sustainable growth for that event and looking how it went um, and it's a real mixed bag I'm afraid to report on this one it's not an easy answer um, it stood out particularly in as a success story for the built environment. So mm. all of the stadiums were Briam um, certified and covered by a legacy commitment to ensure that they basically wouldn't stand um, unused and left to degrade mm-hmm. and therefore be really resource inefficient as well. Um, the worst area was probably waste. So there were no numerical <laughs> waste targets <laughs> at all, um, given they're just a ban on all non-recyclables from being mm. distributed in the stadiums. Um, and that came shortly after the Premier League um, kicked off, which is something that I just missed covering. Um, and at the beginning of the league last year, they partnered with Sky um, under a pledge to eliminate single-use plastics by 2020. Okay. Um, interestingly, this isn't just something that covers the stadiums. It also includes a school outreach scheme involving some of the players so to get kids involved from a young age when they're fans oh, nice. um, and then away from football another sport that keeps coming up when I look for this is tennis hmm. um, so the ATP and the governing body from Wimbledon both implemented pretty ambitious plastic bans this year and installed more water fountains in the venues um, and then Wimbledon has been working on this for a few years uh, across the board Um, But it seems like 2019 was the time that a lot of this all came together. So it was the first tournament um, that all of the electricity used on site was renewable. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was the second year of a new sustainable food sourcing charter and food redistribution charter as well. Um, But I'd say that the event that's really stood out for me and that I've been most impressed by since starting is is Formula E. Okay, yeah. um, Which is coming back to London next year. And this... On the face of it, it is something that, as I said, really showcases sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um, It shows that electric vehicles aren't milk floats and that they can be super fast, super sexy racing cars. 
Um, but there's a lot of nitty-gritty, wide-reaching sustainability initiatives being done by the team behind the scenes. So it's ISO certified. Um, all of the cars, components, tyres and tracks have undergone life cycle analysis for resource efficiency. And they they even do the calendar, especially, to minimise transport oh, wow, that's, and duration that's as well. So hats off to you guys if you're listening. I think I remember reading up on that I think they're going down the bit of like the David Attenborough route as well I think they're, they're launching maybe in 2020 a documentary series around it as well mm. like around the races they do to get you know to kind of bridge that gap between sports fans who would watch that documentary and the kind of environmental degradation of some of the places that they're racing in mm. so I think there was uh, a desert or, or the Arctic they would they were putting the cars out there to showcase stuff so really interesting to see how that takes off and yeah, I, I remember that, um, that that Russia World Cup piece um, quite fondly. It was a really, really good piece as well. And I, I was speaking to um, ITV actually last weekend, who obviously got a lot of the coverage rights for it. Um, and they, they mentioned that their, their coverage of the, <clears throat> the Russian World Cup was Albert certified. And so Albert certification, for those who don't know, it, is essentially um, something that the broadcast community does to ensure that the, the impact of production and recording of of uh, events is, is as sustainable as can be. Um, so yeah, I think in 2018, ITV did something like more than 775 hours of certified sustainable TV. Uh, Love Island was another one of them. So, yeah, so again. EastEnders is yep. certified as exactly. well. Exactly. I feel like I bring up Love Island every week now. Weirdly, even though it's done, I need to keep a. We'll you keep need a, a little, clicker or a jar. Yeah, we'll we'll um we'll put a little uh, we'll put little marks up on the on the board to keep count. I think that's two in two, so one to look out for. It's weirdly on the mind. Um, anyway, that's all great stuff. Um, and it does bring us nicely onto our first interview um, for this episode, which does have a, a sporting theme attached to it. Sarah, um, late last week you sent me an image of a bunch of children playing volleyball on a beach. Um, the net had a kind of dolphin logo on it. Could you perhaps clarify what your cryptid message meant? Yes, so what we're getting at here with all this sports um, preamble is this new initiative called the Good Net Project, which was started off by the Federation of International Volleyball. And the project is basically a social and environmental sustainability initiative whereby ghost nets, so fishing nets that have been abandoned in the seas, are brought ashore and upcycled into volleyball nets, featuring images of the marine life that ghost nets endanger. Um, and this was carried out in part in partnership with design and branding agency Landor, who we spoke to for this episode, to talk a bit about how that works. Really, as a, as I have mentioned, it is something that showcases sustainability and makes it real to players and to audiences, but also something that has a direct impact on the natural environment as well. Okay, so as Sarah mentioned, um, this interview is with Landor Europe's president, uh, Luke Spicer. I hope I got that right. Um, so enjoy this uh, really illuminating uh, interview in full and then join us for the second part of this podcast episode, uh, which continues on that resource efficiency theme with companies that are working with uh, big industry giants such as Nespresso and Adidas. Something that's often left out of the plastic conversation is ghost gear. Um, that is the fishing gear that is discarded at sea, most of which is plastic. Um, and a lot of this is nets. It's believed that there are 640,000 metric tonnes of these just being abandoned in the oceans every year. Um, so when we got an email about this exciting new project called GoodNet, which is repurposing these to make volleyball nets, um, we thought that was a really interesting take on the plastics problem. 
Um, so this is a project that's being co-run by Landor, which is a branding and design agency, um, FIVB, which is the volleyball governing body, um, and Ghost Fishing, which is a marine conservation um, agency. And I'm glad to say that we've got on the podcast today, we've got Luke Spicer, who is the president of Landor Europe, um, who is spearheading this project. Good morning, Luke. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much. No, so this was really exciting to to hear about. Could you give us a bit more information about how the project um, got started and what, what role you guys um, are playing alongside the volleyball agency and the, and the marine conservation charity? Absolutely. Um, it started uh, one, one and a half year ago mm-hmm. uh, when we actually um, won uh, a pitch uh, that was about uh, rebranding volleyball um, in the world. And that, that was the starting point. And uh, so we, we have started to work with uh, the International Federation of Volleyball mm-hmm. to really, really redeploy volleyball and, and convey uh, the fact that this sport is an amazing one with uh, very, very positive and forward-looking values. Uh, like, you know, I don't know if you knew, but it's the sport which uh, parity is absolutely perfect. Where, if I can um, allow this expression, women kick men's asses, right? <laughs> which is amazing. It is actually the sport that is the most watched during the Olympics. So then, if we talk about made of volleyball, of course, and the physical elements of volleyball, you have the net, right? The net is an important part. It's one of the key parts of the volleyball. Uh, well, you know, there are those fishing nets that are discarded in the sea and... And uh, as it were, this is how the idea is born, because then suddenly, you know, the team said, wait a second, we could do something amazing here, something quite meaningful for, for FIBB, right? To say, let's, let's look at those ghost nets, and why wouldn't we transform them and upcycle them into volleyball nets? Um, you know, we are, we are a, a sport made of nets, but we are also uh, a sport that is played on the beach, right? Mm-hmm. Beach volleyball. Mm-hmm. We're close to the sea. So why wouldn't we? The problem of ghost nets was actually quite impressive, you know? We thought it was um, quite important, but not that big. When you think about it, 10% of every year plastic litter in the ocean, it's just crazy. And then there is a, a double uh, effect of those ghost nets is that not only they they count for 10% of the plastic pollution, but also they're killing uh, animals. And then we we went to FIVB and I asked our client a meeting with all the the leaders of FIVB. Uh, and I went to Lausanne and I presented uh, the idea and starting by saying, you know, every Every brand today, regardless who you are, right? Uh, if you are a consumer brand, a B2C brand, a B2B brand, a sports brand, a sports federation, everybody is judged and will be even more so in the future by their actions and more specifically by their actions and tangible actions when it comes to social and environmental responsibility. And this is how we started the meeting by saying, you know, as a federation, um, as embodying, you know, one of those you know, great sports, that is volleyball, um, you need to have a tangible action for the environment. So we take those good nets and we upcycle them into good nets. And we use those nets 
to do two things, right? To do to raise awareness, and then ultimately in the future, ideally, we would love to have all the official volleyball nets be transformed into good nets. No, you sort of covered my next question already, which is what are the aims of the project and how long it'll run for. Obviously, having every net in the game be made in this way would be a massive yeah. um, change. They, they, they bought the idea quite quickly by saying, well, we love it, uh, it makes sense. Um, we agree that we need to actively commit and act uh, in favour of the environment. Uh, good net is completely, we're completely legitimate. And um, so let's, let's, let's start maybe by, uh, by doing an event where we're creating awareness about that. You know, we had one person saying, let's do it in Copacabana because this is where, you know, beach volleyball is born. Mm-hmm. Let's call all the Brazilian volleyball stars because they found the idea quite exciting. So we had the Olympic champions of the Brazilian teams who were there who said, yes, we're coming. The, um, that event in Copacabana took place in March. That first event, gathering those volleyball stars in the middle of, you know, Copacabana Beach, was um, the catalyst of something which, of course, is, is much stronger. So it really boosted um, awareness, and um, and now uh, it will be featured uh, at all FIVB, you know, uh, tournaments around the world. No, well, there we go. I was talking at, at the beginning of this um, of this chat how it is harder, perhaps, to bring home plastic issues that aren't as visible as food and drink packaging, but we might have just cracked it. So thank you, Luke, for shedding some light on the project for us. Um, that's all we have time for on this chat. Um, what are you up to for the rest of your, your day and your week? The two things I, I, I think for me are critical to share um, with people is first that um, when it comes to awareness, we know... Uh, and everybody knows the problem of plastic since a very, 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 very long time. And and so one critical message I would like to convey is that it's not people. It's not because people know that they act right, but that they change. Uh, and that's that's something that is quite critical because now is the time to act. We know it, right? It's been 30 years that those plastic islands have been, you know, discovered, and and it's very important. Um, that now we shift from awareness to action. That's why FIVB, FIVB, the goodness, you know, project is not only awareness, but also shifting to action, right? But, but that's, that's one, one key thing. And the second key thing, which is linked to the first observation, is that we need to now shift from awareness and making people aware to actions. Mm. That comes with um, a new generation of uh, business models which are win-win business models, right? Which invite and which help people make the right choices when it comes to the environment. Some people might be ready to spend more money, right, on on products that are environmental friendly. But if you want, um, you know, the whole population to embrace those kind of products, you have to create win-win business models. So, hello and welcome back to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. 
And thanks again to both Landor and Luke for the uh, chat. Um, and as you mentioned, Sarah, great to see uh, resource efficiencies encouraging more people into those active and healthy lifestyles. And to prove that those type of initiatives aren't just uh, a one-off, um, I believe our next interview is also about a kind of collaborative effort between businesses that essentially uses, you know, post-consumer recycled equipment that can be used by others for, for well, in this case, transport, but also active transport in that sense. Um, Sarah, I should probably point out you're the one that's recorded all the interviews for this uh, episode. So in the sporting theme, you've got a 3-0 lead. Um, but it's probably best you introduce our next interview as well. Yeah, of course. So um, a couple of years ago, Nespresso launched a recycling scheme for its pods. Mm. After lots of people saying, oh, where, where can I recycle them? Should we really be using this infinitely recyclable, really high initial impact material, aluminium, once and then throwing it away? Um and a lot, of, a lot of it is collected just for general recycling into new pods. But Nespresso has also been making a point of partnering with startups that make slightly more sexy mm-hmm. and upcycled products out of it. And for the past year, they've been working with a Swedish, uh, Swedish startup called Velocity that makes bikes okay. um, out of the aluminium. So, yeah, I got, got the opportunity to go into central London have a cup of coffee, um, watch my pod go into the recycling facility and then take a ride on one of these recycled aluminium bikes with Velocity's uh, founder. Okay, so and it's always good to hear more initiatives from Nespresso um, on ED again. We do a lot with them. Um, so this interview is between Sarah and Velocity's founder, uh, Jimmy uh, Othom. Um, so let's get straight on to that. Here's that interview in full. When we talk about resource efficiency and recycling and material innovations, we often talk about plastic, or at least it seems like it has been that way since Blue Planet 2 came out. Um, but for this segment, we're touching on something slightly different, and that is aluminium. Um, and more specifically, I'm in London, at where Nespresso have set up a, what they called a dome in their email. And I wasn't entirely sure what they meant by it, but it genuinely does look like there is an, an igloo here. Um, and the purpose is dual. It's both to showcase their coffee... Um, and the efforts that they are doing to recycle the Nespresso pods. Um, we've, we've been covering the curbside recycling scheme and the office and store take-back for a while, um, but they've never really said much about where the pods go and, until now. <laughs> um, so I'm here with a gentleman who has been working to transform these end-of-life pods into something far more exciting, um, namely urban bikes, pedal bikes. Um, and that is Jimmy Ostholm, who is the founder and chief executive officer at bike company um, Velocity, which calls itself Half Bicycle, Half Philosophy. So thank you so much for joining me, Jimmy. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. Um, yeah, so we've, we've had a look at the bike and it's, it's really snazzy and I just wanted to know how, how this came about. Is this something you've been doing since your company um, started on or how, how did the Nespresso partnership get going? Uh, well, that's a little bit of a fairy tale story, I have to say, because, you know, uh, when I founded the company, uh, it, it wasn't, you know, that I had it as must-do to find a collaboration with Nespresso but you know since the beginning we have always used recycled aluminium in our frames uh, and, and always you know had, had an ambition to to find out ways to to increase the level of recycled aluminium in our frames and and in that search I can, uh, came to 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 learn that Nespresso had done 
recycling uh, projects with uh, a knife company and with a pen company. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the obvious uh, thought was that next time they do that kind of collaboration, it should be around the bike. Uh, so, so I actually reached out to them um, uh, uh, with an email and had, I have to admit, no hopes of getting a response at all, but uh, 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 when I got, uh, I, I of course was, you know, super happy about that. Then it was not, you know, that easy that we made that happen in in, uh, in just a few weeks. We have been, you know, turning this into what you see uh, in terms of that bike for more than a year. So. Mm. And then just about the bike, so they look, they look really great, but can you tell us a bit more about the specs on, on, on the bike? So um, you mentioned that you're working to increase um, recycled content, so how much is there and what are some of the other specifications of, of what you're making? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, for me what you see over there is, is, is so much more than just a beautiful bike or I mean it's beautiful and it's beautiful in, 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 in the sense that I think it's it's nice to look at but it's more to it than than looks because I think it's it's beautiful all uh, on the inside as well and, and and that comes that beauty comes from uh, yes certainly that we have used um, recycled aluminium and in this case recycled uh, coffee pots from Nespresso to uh, to create this uh, uh, bicycle, but but you know, and and that is that is a sustainable choice, which is good, and I think in in terms of working with Nespresso, uh, it shows that aluminium, when uh, used in the right way, it's infinitely uh, recyclable, and 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 I think this is a great platform for me and Nespresso to explain what could happen uh, the second uh, second life products that could be created from from recycled aluminium but I think also that this bike is beautiful because uh, for me the sustainability is all not only about the material it's also about the you know sustainability towards the human being and and and, and we are which I'm proud of, the only bicycle company in the world with a real one-for-one -one promise, meaning that for every bicycle that we sell, we also donate a bicycle to uh, schoolgirls in developing countries. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, uh, both those parts being sustainable in terms of material and, 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 and a responsible choice when it comes to aluminium, and sustainable in the sense that uh, we try to do more than just sell bikes and, and create a platform for more, in this case, girls to, 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 to have a fair chance in life. No, it sounds like a win-win. You've got the circular economy, the helping people in developing countries, and then, of course, enabling low-carbon transport. And the pitch I got for our interview today was talking about, um, talking about consumer attitudes to recycling and, and the circular economy. Um, with recent research suggesting that about half of UK households are still putting some recyclable things like aluminium containers into landfill rather than their recycling bins and the implication was that that might be because they don't know where it goes or aren't inspired with to what value and use it could have. So how, how do you see innovations like this working to change perceptions of a circular economy and, and actually the, the markets themselves as well? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's really the case, that, that too much uh, of the aluminium is, is going to landfill waste. But it, 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 it on, doesn't only apply on aluminium, of course, mm. it's, it's way too much waste. Uh, from 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 other production materials, but in terms of of, of the aluminium, I, I think, and, and which is the reason for me to act because our bike is made of aluminium, I think it's 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 really due to that, you know, one there is a responsibility from the governments, of course, to to uh, support with uh, sufficient uh, possibilities to recycle, and 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 you know, I'm lucky living in Sweden where the government has set up. Uh, recycling stations and bins almost everywhere so for me it's not really an excuse not to recycle although with that said uh, I, I, I have to you know admit that the percentage is 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 too low in Sweden mm. even with that so I can see the challenges uh, in, in other countries which not even have the government support in, in, in doing this so I think every company small or big has a responsibility to to try to you know emphasize the importance of recycling and to show that as we do uh, in this collaboration by uh, by bringing uh, uh, a great looking bike uh, uh, sustainably made i think that's one way to do it to show people that this is the creation of your effort to mm. recycle uh, yeah. whatever it is, if it's Nespresso pods or if it's a cap. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, uh, there is much more to do and I think uh, companies have to take their responsibility in, in mm. providing uh, inspiration and, and, and uh, the, all the good things that you can do with it. Mm. No, it is very uninspiring to be putting your plastic in a recycling bin, thinking you're doing well, then turning the BBC on and it's being burnt in Malaysia, yeah. or putting your T-shirt um, in a donation bin, thinking you're doing great, then reading that less than 1% of textiles are actually mechanically recycled mm. and just thinking, like, oh, how can I actually get involved? Um, and I think that brings us on to, to the last question, which is something I wanted to take advantage of, having someone not from the UK on the podcast, which is always a nice treat. Um, which is, you talked there a bit about how the UK and Sweden differed in policy, um, but do you think there's different sustainability culture? I mean, it's definitely something we see discussed in a lot of lifestyle podcasts, books, um, media. There are books coming out on how to live Scandinavianly and Danishly, and just what, what do you think the cultural differences are around sustainability? What? You know, as soon as you assume it's a cultural matter then it becomes instantly hard to change mm. so I think the mindset shouldn't be that it's culturally based it may be that but I think that's not the way forward because then you have to compare your culture with our culture and and I think that you are a bit protective about your own cultures I think we have to find other ways to define that but what I see uh, is that you know, we have good government support when it comes to this. We have too little information about it, but as being a startup as we are and loving collaborations, I meet uh, other startups and small companies all the time. And what I can see there is that there is a drive. I'm really hopeful that 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 we will increase 
all over the planet the mindset when it comes to that. Mm. No, even our publisher, he's got a little boy who's still in primary school and he came into the office one day and just looked completely shaken and we were like, David, what's wrong? And he said, my kids just had a go at me for not being able to um, buy a fully electric vehicle. <laughs> he's still in yeah. primary school, yeah. so I think he might be on to yeah, something I there. Think so. Um, yeah, but I think that's a good time to wrap it up because we have pretty much a perfect afternoon here. It's it's sunny, we're at Westfield, so we've got all the shops here and we've got a lot of coffee around, so let's go and enjoy it. Um, but thank you, Jimmy, for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Nice to meet you. So I feel like we got all the all the kind of conversational stuff of this episode uh, out of the way in the first half and at the risk of heading into extra time or a super over if you're a cricket fan, I think it's best we kind of get straight onto that third and final interview for this episode. Um, so this one's slightly less of a sports theme but very much keeps on that resource efficiency um, aspect but you did inform me that um, Adidas have been involved in some form with the company that we're talking to next. Yeah, so a few weeks ago I got an email from Stuffster, which is a startup aiming at helping major retailers offer take-back schemes for any product um, possible, and they started with a trial at John Lewis, mm-hmm. really interestingly, um, and they would got in touch with me because they'd received um, more than $2 million in seed funding, with a big proportion of that coming from Adidas to upscale this model, and Adidas is already doing a lot of interesting stuff in this space, such as pledging to get rid of virgin plastics in everything it does by 2024, mm-hmm. um, collaborating with Stella McCartney on some more innovative pilot projects as well. And this looks at the other side of the story, sort of how the small business fits into that. Okay, great. And I definitely still want to get my hands on a pair of those Adidas um, ocean waste trainers as well. So. Um, and I've seen a lot of articles on the ED site as to how take-back schemes, they're proven really successful. You mentioned John Lewis, um, but also VF Corp, IKEA, probably a couple of champions for the take-back scheme. So I'm really interested to see how this chat unfolds. So um, so who, who is the person we're, we're speaking to from Stuffster? Um, so it's the company's co-founder and chief executive, John Etchison. Great stuff. Well, let's hear that chat between Sarah and John in full. Great. So for the next part of this podcast, we are taking a foray into the field of sustainable fashion innovation. Um, anyone that's been listening to this podcast for a while or that reads any of my content on Edie will know that this is something I'm really passionate about um, because fashion is one of the biggest industries in the world. It's thought to employ one in t- every 10 um, people globally, but at the same time, it has an absolutely massive waste problem it's an industry that's churning out 100 billion pieces of clothing and 20 billion pairs of shoes every year most of which um, isn't designed for existing mechanical recycling systems Um, so I was really excited to hear about um, about a new innovative business model for for dealing with that and that is Stuffster um, who I have on the phone today Um, and it's just a very very inspirational business model. It's a, a, a world with no, no excess stuff and no wasted stuff um, and that brands and retailers should be able to provide instant buyback on every purchase um, and they've been starting in fashion. Um, so here to tell us a bit more about that is Stuffster's Chief Executive Officer and Founder, John Aitchison, who has joined me on the phone today. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Nice to talk to you, Sarah. You too. Um, yeah, so I was really interested to get the pitch and to hear about Stuffster in the first in- 
instance. Um, but for those who haven't been as lucky as me in getting all this lovely press material, <laughs> would you mind quickly summarising? Um, so w- what what the platform what the platform does, um, how it does it, and why why you saw that this needed to to be set up in the first instance? Sure. Yeah. So Stockster actually goes back several years, and I had. Um, I'd previously helped launch a company called GetAround that was doing peer-to-peer car sharing, um, started in San Francisco. And, and for me, that was really about trying to put to use the 92% idle time of cars, that we have these amazing, expensive assets, and they sit around doing nothing for 22 hours a day. Right. Um, and so we kind of got GetAround going, got that all started. And then I started looking at all the other things we buy and what happens to those things. And it was really kind of shocking and <laughs> demoralizing because... It's just there's so much waste going on. And, you know, we typically buy things, we use them for a little while, and then they kind of slip into the disuse or no use at all. And, you know, 80% of things we have are useless once a month. And ultimately, about 70% of those things end up going directly into landfill, even though they have perfectly good, useful lives left. Um, and so Stuffster was designed with the idea that everything has value. Um, we, we like to say even old socks. <laughs> and um, as you mentioned, our, our vision is no unused stuff. That We want to make sure that everything is kind of moving and, and going all the time. And so to do that, we've developed a platform that provides instant buyback of, for every purchase from kind of partner brands and retailers. Um, and the, the user experience is actually really straightforward, um, that you would go to that retailer app or website and be able to see your last five years of purchases. And then um, within that, every single item is going to be stamped with an instant buyback price. And you can select which, item, which items you're not really using anymore, um, what seems like a, a reasonable price. And then simply by tapping those on your phone and then pressing a button, um, we will instantly dispatch a courier to your door to pick the things up for free. Um, and as soon as we receive them, we then send you um, a gift card in that amount instantly. So usually within one to three hours, everything is picked up and you're completely paid for the items. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the objective in all of this is to try to take all the friction, consumer friction, out of the process. Um, you know, there are many different ways people would resell things and, and yeah. kind of responsibly deal with their things that they're not using, but they all have really pretty enormous amounts of friction involved. Um, you know, if I want to create a listing on eBay, I have to, you know, create an account, take pictures, create the listing, manage that listing, pack the thing up and ship it out. And so we wanted to make it so that people had essentially no friction. And we, you know, we joke internally that if we could actually go to people's homes and carry the item from the closet to the courier, and we would do that too, because that's probably a 25% drop-off, um, just having that one last piece of friction in the process. Um, but that's, that's what we do, and, and our aim is to really fundamentally change the flow of goods to make it so that it's so easy to do something that captures value and responsibly repurposes those items that you would just never think of letting them sit around and pile up and ultimately them off the landfill. Mm. No, and we we got the information for this podcast um, shortly after you guys got a new round of seed funding, um, and one of the big contributors to that was Adidas, um, yeah, who have obviously recently um, been working on their Future Craft Loop um, vision for sustainability and have been doing a lot 
um, about waste. So I wanted to get your insights on what it, what it means for a smaller, in, innovative company such as yourselves to work in this way with um, with a larger with a larger company. Well, I think you know our model from the very beginning was based on partnering with major brands and retailers because they're the ones that have the customer relationships. They're the ones that have the products. Um, if we want to do anything at scale, we have to work through the players that have that scale. And, you know, Adidas is a fantastic example. And I think they're also a really, you know, shiny example of a brand that's taking a really proactive look at how they can change the way their products are designed, how those products are sold, how they do business. Um, and, uh, you know, a Futurecraft Loop shoe, which is really cool. <laughs> Hopefully your, your listeners have actually had a chance to see some press reward or something. But, you know, the whole idea of having, you know, a single, uh, you know, a high-performance trainer that's made out of one single material with no glues, no anything else. And so when it starts to wear down, you just take it apart and build it again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really a, a pretty fantastic example. Um, so anyway, we just we think that you know companies like Adidas are really kind of out there on the cutting edge, and and they have such enormous scale and ability to move sustainability forward that um, if we really want to change the flow of things, we need to be in partnership with them. Mm. And and what would you say the benefits are for them? You've talked about it from from your side, but what's the benefit for for a big brand like Adidas? Um, well, of course, I mean, their relationship is very young, and we, you know, it was announced in January that we're part of the Adidas Platform A Accelerator Program in Paris. Um, and so, you know, through that, we've gotten to know the executives there very well. We've got to have a better understanding of what their objectives are, and, and, you know, we're looking at ways that we can work together to really try to move sustainability forward. Mm-hmm. Great. And then we've touched on this a bit already, but I find it really interesting that this this model is something that you guys see could be grown to apply to any physical item but you started in fashion um, and I just wanted to ask to ask why and then also working within fashion a big problem that that I've seen is getting people involved and getting their trust that this sort of thing works I mean we've got documentaries coming out like Stacey Dooley investigates um, fast fashion we've got books coming out like slave to fashion um, so how do you turn awareness of this problem into positive motivation to to get trust from people to use to use a model sure no i think it's a great point um, well first of all in terms of how we chose fashion you know we we had um you know gotten a relationship with john lewis and um and they had made a big focus on trying to be the first to pilot this buy you know our buyback platform get it out there and, and we knew that we couldn't do their entire product line. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Lewis, mm-hmm. they sell everything. <laughs> so, um, and that, that was just too much to take on. And so we, we looked at a whole range of factors, but I think probably the, the two main factors, one was just pure logistical, uh, logistical element, which is the closer, easier to move around than stereo systems and televisions. Um, but then secondly, we felt that fashion was an area that, that really, really needed some help and sustainability. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just a you know, particularly environmentally damaging industry. And the more we can do to actually take every single item that's produced and make sure that item gets used fully, um, you know, the, the, the impact of that would be really far, far reaching. And so those two factors then came together to make us do fashion. Yeah, there, I mean, there's really a tremendous amount of distrust out there 
among consumers generally and, and probably particularly around fashion and, and claims of fashion sustainability, you know, claims that oh, we're, we're putting all these recycled items to good use and then you see they're going off to an incinerator somewhere. And, um, you know, I, I think that's led to a lot of distrust out there. I think from, from our standpoint, we have a real advantage in what we do in the sense that we have complete information on every single item. Um, it's, it's basically a closed loop system. When something is put on a shelf in a store, all the information about that item is, is already cataloged, right? Size, color, everything about it. And when someone buys it, then it also has the additional information of when it was purchased and what was paid for it and all of that. And so we have that information on every single item in the system, and that's how we generate our offer prices, to have that depth of information. And so when something comes to us, we've got all of this data that we, we can work with, and we're also kind of linked back to um, the original buyer who, who sold it back to us. And so we're looking at a number of different ways we can build into this system really kind of unprecedented transparency so that a, a consumer could sell something back and then be able to very easily go in and actually see what happened, you know, down to the, the last detail, right? That your item was resold on this date, on this marketplace, at this price. Um, and, and ultimately begin to incorporate all the other elements of that transaction in terms of the cost that went into getting that thing to this other customer. And, and ultimately, I think for us, the vision would be to have things that even are, are not resellable, right? So we're going back to the old socks, right? So we can have old socks with holes in them, and we know that those are not something that are going to be resellable, but they still have value. There's still material there, and there's tremendous innovation going on in terms of chemical recycling processes and various other ways you can make use of those materials. And so um, ultimately, we'd like to be able to even give people visibility into things that don't sell and where those things go and what, what happens to those things. And I think if we can do that, I think that will start to build back the trust. I think if people feel that they have a way to actually see what's going on, um, even if they don't do it very often or even don't do it at all, the fact that it's there and that, um, that it's so precise and so you know, exact in terms of what's going on, um, you know, we'd like to believe that can really make people feel much more trusting and, and much more engaged in the whole process. And then just to finish up, it begs the question of, so you've worked with John Lewis, you're working with Adidas, what's next? Well, you know, as I said, we're looking to change the flow. And so we, we think big. I mean, you know, Stuffster was started not as a, a, an opportunity to kind of create a nice little company that takes advantage of some diseconomy. It was really set up very much with a mission of changing that flow. And so it was kind of a, you know, let, let's go for broke or go home. <laughs> let's see if we can actually have, you know, a real impact on this. And and I think we're, you know, we're very encouraged right now with, with what's happening. I mean, I think we've got, you know, we had a great partner with John Lewis. We're really excited about the Adidas relationship and, and you know, where that could lead. Um, we, you know, have a whole bunch of other conversations going on with brands and retailers that have, you know, approached us with great interest in trying to have this kind of buyback program and have this kind of facility. Um, and so we really see just tremendous opportunity to start to expand this rapidly. And I think for us at this point, we don't have any question about our ability to actually capture these things now. Um, you know, what we found in the John Lewis pilot was that the, you know, the average person who sold things back through the, through the service, was, they were selling back close to 20% of everything they bought in five years. 
that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> and that's just, you know, the first reaction. That's what they did the moment they got this. Um, so we have a pretty high degree of confidence that we've come up with a solution that actually gets people to recirculate these things. And so where we're focusing as a company right now is trying to build scale on the back end so that we can be able to process these things in very high volume and make the best possible use out of them, right? We want to get them into the hands of people who can actually use them and really want them. Um, and so we need to be able to do that at really high volume, very quickly and very efficiently. And so that's, that's where we're focusing right now. I think if we can, if we can master that, which is, you know, of course, a lot of work, um, so if we master that, I think we can really truly have a broad impact on this. Well, I'll have my fingers crossed for you, but that's all we have time for. So thank you very much, John, for, for speaking to us about this today. All right, thank you, Sam. So there you have it, free resource-efficient sports-based interviews to bring you um, on the Friday before the Premier League starts. Sarah, I've got a very important question for you before we wrap up. Who will win the Premier League this year? I don't know, but I know who'll be fifth, and it's your boys. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I mean, you're probably, you're probably not wrong, yeah. Um, I'm an Arsenal fan for those uh, wondering, and yeah, fifth looks like it could well be uh, on the cards. Um, but for those of you listening who perhaps want to find a team to support this year based more so on their sustainability credentials, Sarah has spent um, a lot of this week investigating how clubs are approaching sustainability um, and you can find out who the green champions of the Premier League are on um, the ED websites um, right now. Uh, but we're, we're approaching the uh, full-time whistle for today's episode. I've got loads of these sports puns out of my And sleep. you didn't bring a real whistle. Uh, I, I know, yeah. Um, I think that would just be annoying beyond belief. Um, a strong 3-0 win for Sarah today based on uh, the interviews delivered. So I'll have to up my game when uh, we do return. And we may actually be away for a little bit longer um, than usual. August means that all uh, ED members are, are generally on holiday or out of the office at some point this month. But I do hope to get us all back in the studio before September when things really start to pick up for, for climate change and sustainability with that big UN uh, summit mm -hmm. taking place. Um, but in the meantime, be sure to check the ED website, subscribe to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast on Spotify and or iTunes if you haven't already. Uh, for now though, it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>